Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we talked to Israeli entrepreneur Errol Margalit about his plan to help create a regional hub for tech startups. This week, we hear from one of the co-founders of Facebook, who says his experience of making half a billion dollars for three years' work is indicative of how unfair the American economy has become. A lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings really coming in, not, not doing well for themselves, but really coming into massive amounts of wealth is without much precedent historically. And I think it calls into question, is this the kind of economy that we want, particularly at a moment when virtually everybody else is having a hard time making ends meet, when median wages haven't risen in 40 years? And I don't think it is. That's the voice of Chris Hughes, who went on to manage Barack Obama's 2008 digital campaign and buy the New Republic magazine. He spoke to my colleague Hannah Kushler in San Francisco. So thank you so much for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me. In Silicon Valley, people often talk about building companies and startups as the ultimate meritocracy. So why do you describe building Facebook as a little bit more like winning the lottery? Well, the case I make in the book is that oftentimes it's a little bit of both. So take Facebook, for example. You know, we launched Facebook in February of 2004. It exploded at Harvard and later at other colleges, opened it up to the rest of the world, and it grew very quickly. However, Facebook's real growth, both from a user base and from a financial perspective, came years later, and specifically after the advent of the smartphone. And I make the case in the book that it's just one example of multiple major macroeconomic forces that are working in the background, globalization in the case of the smartphone, that made Facebook's rise possible. I mean, we chose to structure our economy in a way that made it possible to create an iPhone with labor in China, parts from Africa and across the world, and much of the design happening here in the United States. And it's really the advent of the smartphone that enabled Facebook to rise as precipitously as it did, in addition to the rise of finance. Venture capital didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. Facebook raised over $500 million in venture capital before it went public. That enabled its rise. So that's all to say that, you know, Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Mark Zuckerberg, the entire Facebook leadership team, like many other companies, worked very hard to make Facebook as successful as it has become. They were also, we were also buoyed by these major forces like automation, globalization, and the rise of finance that have created a world where ideas can go from being dorm room curiosities into $500 billion 
companies in the course of a little bit more than a decade. And and we created those rules and we have the power to decide if we like what they're doing to our economy or if we don't. And my contention is we need to make some changes. And yes, I mean, obviously you were a bright scholarship kid who would probably would have gone very far even if you hadn't shared a room with Mark Zuckerberg hmm. and ended up going on to, to work on Facebook. But, but how does your experience of upward mobility compare to previous generations? Particularly after Facebook went public and you know, I came into this wealth, my husband and I made a commitment to give the vast majority of it away in the course of our lifetimes. And I felt like my case was really unique. You know, that I, I was the roommate of Mark Zuckerberg. I had worked some, but the the financial reward that I got was entirely disproportionate. And what I've come to believe is that my case is very extreme. However, it's not that uncommon. I mean, we all know the stats, but the top 0.1% in the United States, not top 1%, top 0.1% now owns as much wealth as the bottom 90% combined. And we know that that is historically unique. I mean, the last time income inequality was that bad was 1929, which historians will know is the year the Great Depression began. And unless we we do something about it, I don't think it's going to change. So this historical precedent of a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings really coming in, not, not doing well for themselves, but really coming into massive amounts of wealth is without much precedent historically. And I think it calls into question, is this the kind of economy that we want, particularly at a moment when virtually everybody else is having a hard time making ends meet, when median wages haven't risen in 40 years? And I don't think it is. And you talked about some of the factors of the seeds of Facebook success before in terms of new technologies, globalized trade, rise of finance and venture capital. But in the book, you trace those back to the 1970s. Why, mm-hmm. why do you think that was a turning point? Well, for several decades after the Second World War, economic growth, it was significant and it was broad-based in the sense that the economy grew consistently and most people benefited from it. And then we turned a corner, unfortunately, in the late 1970s and 1980s, particularly when we see the rise of a very empowered business and corporate class. We see a transformation in lobbying. In Washington, D.C., we see presidential leadership and leadership in the Congress, much of which came from the right, but for decades was often embraced by the left, too, of a kind of theory that, well, if we just cut taxes on corporations and the wealthy, then economic growth will come. And what we've seen now 40 years later is that there is some economic growth, but median wages have not meaningfully budged since that moment. I mean, right now, the median household in America makes more or less what they did 40 years ago. It's moved up slightly, but the cost of living is 30% higher. And I mean, you know, it's not just in places like San Francisco and New York, but it's housing, it's healthcare, it's childcare, it's education, etc. So we began to structure our economy in a different way. And that was a purposeful decision that we've doubled down on in the 90s. And then unfortunately, I believe yet again in the Trump tax bill that was passed at the end of last year. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when we make these investments, we end up with the kind of static growth for median households that we have today. And I think when we think about you know, well, what what are the many forces that cause the rise of Donald Trump? It's not the only one, but one of the most prominent ones is this sense on the right and on the left that the economy isn't working for everyday people. And so we have to rethink how we're going to structure that if we're going to restore some sense of economic mobility and, you know, some semblance of opportunity to 
most American people. Yeah, and I'm going to come and spend a lot of time on the solution that you propose in the book. But one thing that I also found interesting was, was you were talking about the advantages of the openness of the internet and how instead mm. of perhaps letting, you know, a thousand flowers bloom, or it did for a while, it did actually play into the hands of first movers and made very large companies. We're obviously in, in the midst of a lot of hand-wringing about how these big tech companies work. Do you think that a company like Facebook could be made as quickly today? I'm not sure. I mean, we certainly haven't seen it since. So many of the, the massive technology companies that exist today, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, all really were started or became significantly successful in a unique period between the mid-1990s and towards the end of the initial decade of the 21st century. So Facebook, in some ways, was the last entrant. Mm -hmm. You know, we started Facebook in 2004, and its growth really, really hit the hockey stick kind of growth several years later. And since Facebook was founded, the largest company, at least by market cap, is Uber, which is just over, I mean, I don't know where Facebook's market cap is today, but just over a tenth of Facebook's size. So, you know, we could talk about what the next frontier of disruption is. But when we talk about these consumer-facing internet companies, the big ones were created in a particular moment in time. And I do think that we can see increasingly that there was a first-mover advantage that now, you know, if you wanted to start a new social network today, certainly there have been many that have started, you know, Twitter and Snap are prominent examples, and they have been successful, but at a more modest scale than Mm -hmm. Facebook has. So I think it's fair to say that there was a unique period where these companies were able to be founded and grow very quickly. And the, you know, favorite word, particularly out here in Silicon Valley is disruption these days. But when you have a single company like Facebook, not only owning the Facebook platform, but also Instagram and WhatsApp, and by some counts controlling over 80% of the social traffic and the social conversations happening on the web, it is a kind of institutional power that is harder for an upstart to come in and quote unquote, disrupt. That's not to say that's not possible. I don't want to overstate the case here, but I think we have enough distance from that historical period now to know that it was a very unique one. So let's go on and talk about this um, solution that you come up with in the book. A lot of people, especially in the tech industry, have become particularly attracted to the idea of a universal basic income. And that's not the option that you think we should push for. Tell me about the difference between the universal basic income and the guaranteed income that you propose. They're inspired by the exact same ideals. You know, this idea that everybody deserves to have their dignity recognized and a basic level of freedom to provide for themselves, for their families, and to figure out what they want to do with their time and with their lives. So the values are very similar. You know, a UBI is often talked about in the context of the rise of artificial intelligence and automation. And in my view, we can and should have an important debate about how technology will change the world in 2030, 2040, and beyond. However, it also obscures what has already happened today. The jobs in America for the most part, are coming apart. By that, I mean that of all the jobs that we've created in the past decade, 94%, according to Princeton economists, are part-time, contract, or temporary. So people can find, more often than not, some kind of work 
But, uh, you know, you think of the Lyft driver or the Postmates delivery person as indicative of it, but it's not just those folks. It's people who are lucky if they get 25 hours this week at a Starbucks or a Walmart and who next week might get 10 or people who work in seasonal jobs, people for whom a job does not mean basic stability, you know, 40 hours a week, benefits, retirement, etc. So in my view, we need a guaranteed income today, specifically of $500 a month for people who are working, making less than $50,000 as a force for stabilization of the economic lives, not just to combat income inequality, but to provide an income floor to the people who need it. And if and when technological, mass technological unemployment arrives, then we have the foundation to build upon, to think about a more robust kind of benefit, you know, $1,000 a month to more people. I see a guaranteed income as a kind of meaningful down payment on that idea. And you sound a little skeptical about the idea that mass unemployment is coming because of AI. I mean, it may be. I'm naturally suspicious of anybody who claims to have a crystal ball. <laughs> there is a good case that artificial intelligence really is different. And particularly when you think about augmented artificial intelligence or some of the ways that this can be used to decrease the overall number of jobs used. So for instance, self-driving cars. We talk a lot about self-driving cars. When are they going to hit the road? I think that what is much more significant in the short term are self-driving trucks and specifically trucks that can have a driver but can handle two, three, four times the amount of good transportation than they've been able to historically. So in that case, it's not that all the jobs get wiped out, but that there's significantly fewer drivers, which as we know is a major job in the economy. I spend a lot of time with economists these days, and they all just think this is bunk. You know, that the idea that the economy won't in the long term create other kinds of jobs is without historical precedent. So there is a robust debate there happening. So I want to have that conversation about how AI might change the future of work, but I want to have it at the same time as we're talking about how work in America has already changed and how a guaranteed income can provide the opportunity that we want to see. So let's get back then to the details of your plan. How do you pay for it? So in my view, we should provide guaranteed income, $500 a month to people who are making about $50,000 on down, adjusted by the state that you live in, and a few other factors. I think we should pay for it by asking the 1% to pay their share. And specifically, bringing tax rates on income above $250,000 into line with where they were for much of the 20th century, up to 50%. At the same time, we should close the most egregious tax loopholes, specifically the Buffett rule, this idea that Warren Buffett should not pay a lower tax rate than his administrative assistant. And with those changes, we can pay for guaranteed income of the size that I'm talking about. I mean, there's a lot of people out there, particularly traditionalists, who um, say, this might be an interesting idea. Yeah, we might need it. It's never going to happen. It's just too too expensive. You know, it's 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 going to cost several trillion dollars and the, and the money is just not, not there. And in reality, is an expensive proposition and an ambitious one. But we're talking about something about $290 billion a year. For context, that's half of what we spend on defense. And another data point, this Trump tax bill that was passed at the end of last year, that's estimated to cost about $2 trillion over the next decade. 
What we're talking about here would cost roughly that, a little bit more, but roughly that, the same order of magnitude. So if we can develop the political will to further cut tax rates on corporations and tax rates on the 1%, I think we owe it to ourselves to develop the will to provide a tax break to the people who need it the most, and specifically a guaranteed income administered through a modernization of the earned income tax credit. One last thing on the pay for You know, I think that there's a lot of concern, particularly in cities, in places like San Francisco and New York, where $250,000, you know, that sounds like a lot, but a lot of people say, well, I'm making that, but I'm not, I'm not part of the 1%. And what we're talking about is an increase on rates above 250K. If your family makes $300,000, you're going to pay an extra seven grand to provide a guaranteed income. If you make $10 million and are truly one of those winner-take-all winners, you're going to pay well over a million dollars a year. The way to structure this, I think, is to make sure that we can have lots of winners who do very well in the economy, but not to structure it in a way where a small group of people is able to effectively take nearly all of the earnings and, and winnings off the table just for themselves. And you mentioned there the earned income tax credit, which is um, kind of a benefit that came in in the 1970s that you discuss in the book. And I found this actually fascinating because it felt like it showed something about how there are historical precedents for this kind of guaranteed Mm -hmm. income, but they have to be snuck in. So so, so why is it that people are so resistant to this idea and, and a little bit about, you know, what has the earned income tax credit achieved? It's a program that is really remarkable in its run. So we had a big debate about how to have a guaranteed income in the United States in the early 70s, as probably many of your listeners know. Richard Nixon supported the idea, passed the House, failed in the Senate. One of the things that emerged from that is this thing called the Earned Income Tax Credit. So before we talk about why it works the way it is, just to define what it is. Right now, tens of millions of Americans get a check in the spring of each year no strings attached. It's anywhere from 500 bucks up to as much as $6,000 that is administered through the tax code, but it is cash. It's a yearly cash benefit that we have a lot of scholarly evidence to know is very effective at lifting people out of poverty. More people are lifted out of poverty by this cash benefit than unemployment insurance, food stamps, and housing vouchers combined. And we also know that people after they get it keep working. In many cases, they even work more. So it's a powerful benefit that we already have in the tax code. And it's also been historically popular on the left and the right. It was signed into law by Gerald Ford, Republican in the 1970s. And every single president since Ford, Republican and Democrat alike, has meaningfully expanded the benefit because it's politically popular and it's very effective. It is, I think, important to expand the definition of work. You don't just have to have a job in the paid formal economy, but if you do childcare, elder care, if you're a student, and you can imagine even further pushing the boundaries of artists, people in religious service. And I think the effect of that would be, I know the effect of that, would be an income floor, would be a guaranteed income. To answer your question about submerging it in the tax code, I think we have the opportunity now to have a much bigger and broader conversation about how this benefit works and to also make it more visible so that people who benefit from it know that they benefit from it. Unfortunately, a lot of people now don't even really know what it is, what it's called, how it works, and to make it defensible. 
And so how do you convince people ideologically? It seems that especially in America, there is a real bias against the idea of handing out cash. And I noticed in the book you mentioned at the beginning that your father was very skeptical yeah. of this. And by the end, he'd kind of half come around. How did you convince him? I think this is the biggest question that we, that we as a movement have to work on. Because it asks fundamental questions about can you trust people? Can you trust people to make the quote-unquote right decisions for their families, for themselves? Can they spend the money well? I do think in America that we have a sense that as long as you're doing something for yourself or your community, as long as you're working in some way, you should not live in poverty. You know, that's the kind of statement that sounds almost cliched on its face. And But if you poll on agreement of that, it's like, sure, well, everybody sort of agrees with that. Unfortunately, that's not true. There are many people who are working in the formal economy and in the informal who are not able to make ends meet. And so I think that the opportunity is to make a values-based case that the America that we want to live in is one where we take care of one another. And I think this particularly resonates with people in their 20s and 30s who have a view that something is fundamentally amiss. We have to start thinking about policy at a state level. Where can we start in a more modest way, just like with marriage equality or drug reform? And then in the long term, we have to think about where we want to go at a federal level. Everybody understands this is not kind of thing that's going to happen tomorrow, particularly under leadership that we have right now in Washington. But if we can build and invest in a long-term movement around this idea, I think we can be the generation that, that ensures that every American has financial security and specifically that that's provided for through cash, through the ways that really fundamentally embrace the dignity and, and freedom that I think everybody should have to figure out what they want to do with their time and what they want to do with their lives. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.